All right, it appears that we are live. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 46 of my live chat. Today is the 28th of August. My ears are a little bit red because I had headphones on them for the last two hours. I just did my very last uh, Sirius XM broadcast. My, my time at the company has now come to a close. Obviously, I've been living under a rock. I have taken a position with um, CBS Sports, and uh, that actually starts on Monday. Um, so today was my last uh, broadcast with the company. It might even be my last one in radio ever, to be quite candid with you, but um, I don't know that just yet. So I guess we'll see. But uh, either way, we, now it's time for the live chat. So whatever your questions have been and whatever they are, we will get to them uh, right now. And I still have not signed into my fucking Stream Deck account. So let's just uh, let's just do what we can here with the things that we have. All right, let's try this thing, shall we? All right, and we're back. Uh, okay, give the video a thumbs up, please. Subscribe to the channel. I always appreciate that when you do. Looking to up those numbers. Um, yeah, today's a weird day because I've been in this company since 2011, and now I am not. And um, and now, uh, you know, it, ju it literally just ended. It ended at 3, or 2.58 in 58. Um, so... Yeah, it's a weird time for me. Plus, it's my wife's birthday, which is always nice. But, um, yeah, it's a weird one for me. It certainly is a weird one. Um, anyway. All right. We'll get to whatever you want to get to. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. My wife ordered these today. I've never actually had one. They're probably, like, dog shit. I think I got it manual. No, I automatic focus. There we go. Smirnoff Ice <laughs> Screwdriver. What is this, just pure fucking sugar? Probably. Let's try it. We don't have any beer in the house. Oh my god. That's just sugar. God, college kids drink this shit now? You can't just pour orange juice and vodka together? You gotta buy this shit? Really? Alright. I'm gonna drink it anyway. Let's do this. Drinking on the job. Okay. Let's see what you guys got to. And of course, if you donate, I will get to your questions at a, in about an hour at the end of the sort of free portion here. All right. At this point, after being dominated and brutalized in his last fight to Max Holloway almost two years ago, and with his only activity since being fighting a scrawny K-pop star in public, should Brian Ortega fans be worried about a poor handling of his most recent loss? Maybe. Have we seen anything indicating his mind state or physical condition going into his upcoming fight? Um, I could be wrong about this, but didn't he have an injury along the way which derailed the timing of his comeback? I think that's right. More to the point, I don't think when he lost to Max Holloway, he thought he was going to be off for two years. So it's not like that was a planned thing. I think it's just been a series of circumstances about what were the right fights to be. Because also, he didn't want to just take any old fight that came around. So what were the right fights to be in? What was the right time to come back? Again, two years is the point where you can ask questions like, you know, how much time did you lose in your development? Or, you know, um, did you get better, but could you have gotten way better doing something else? I mean, it's not like his stock, I mean, his stock took a hit, but it's not like it's terrible. I mean, understand that, like, he still ranked, he's still ranked in such a way where if he beats the Korean zombie, he might get a title shot. 
right? I mean, that might sound crazy to you, but I, in some ways it's really not. You're like, well, if he beats Korean Zombie, I mean, maybe he would have to fight Magomed Sharapov or, or uh, Yair if they end up fighting, but then you're killing off a contender that Volkanovsky kind of needs, so maybe not. Uh, it's just, it, it, you know, it's kind of a crazy time. So I think, I think you're probably right to ask questions about, you know, whether this was optimal, and I think it probably wasn't. But I don't know, man. I, there's a lot of mythologies. Like, time off is never good, but it's hard to know exactly what it all means in, in, as it relates to each fighter. What did it particularly affect? What did it particularly not affect? What was the upside for? What was the net gain? What was the, you know... It, they, it just runs the gamut a lot. And yes, Rust can be one of them. Uh, you know, Not getting back to what they were normally good at is another one. Stunting development. These are sort of the more common ones. But I guess I would say I am looking at this performance as a real risk given that he's been off two years and he's had an opponent who has had uh, some degree of infrequency but not nearly as much and appears to be peaking in terms of his talent level. That's a hard thing to come back to. And so I think that might be a biting off more than he can chew. Um, but I, I'm hesitant to make any bold declarations right now. All right, do you think a contender should be given a title shot if they have not been in a five-round match? Well, I'll say this. As a general rule, they shouldn't be, but not as an actual rule. Like, as a rule of thumb, you don't want to do that. But I would not want to see a codified rule where, like, you haven't had a five-round fight? That's just it. You know, and not like an actual one that went five rounds because you could be booked in a five-round fight and knock the guy out inside one or two. That's not what I'm talking about. You, you, what you're talking about is like you've never actually been booked in a five-round fight. Um, I, I wouldn't want to make it a point of practice, but I also wouldn't want to make a rule. You would need to have some degree of promotional flexibility to get around this stuff whenever the moment um, calls for it. Fight's not taken... What do you think would have happened in these much-hyped fights had, uh, that, that never came to pass? Fedor versus Brock. I think Fedor would have won the first time. GSP versus Silva. I think GSP would have won. Ronda versus Cyborg. I guess at the time I thought Ronda might have her um, number, but no, Cyborg would have crushed her. Rogan versus Wesley Snipes. It would have been Rogan. Is Tyron Woodley versus Colby Covington still a fight you're looking forward to, or did the UFC miss their opportunity? I will say that this is not the optimal time for it. They missed their opportunity to get the most out of it. But that it still offers them something, I think, is probably true. So it's never an either-or. It's always like, what is the gradient by which we have to make this uh, measurement? So in that sense, clearly you got Woodley coming off of not one but two bad losses. Covington coming off of a loss that was bad in certain ways, but kind of redemptive in others. You know, he did... I don't. I mean, I look back at that as like, oh, in the end, Kamaru was sort of better. I don't really look back at that one and was like, oh, is it too loud? Maybe it's a little loud. Hang on. Let's put it down just a little bit. There we go. I don't look at it like um, Colby's stock is, you know, it's terrible now. Oh, he, you know, he really just fell apart. It's like, okay, clear limits were shown to pieces of his game. That is true, yes. But he also showed clear strengths, and he uh, has not taken a lot of punishment uh, absent that fight. And 
I think he's younger, fresher. I think the style matchup is bad for Tyron at this point. Tyron still has big power, um, but the last two fights have not been especially inspiring. It's just that those two guys are a little bit more... Um, no, I'm not sure that's true, actually. I won't, I won't make that statement. I, I'll say this. I think it's a bad fight for Tyron. It's a, it's a go big or go home fight for him, which is why I think he likes it. And it is winnable, to be clear. But it also offers a fair degree of peril. Um, if you ask me, because he is he's going to go up against a guy who can probably wade through punishment necessary to make him work. And he can probably make him work sufficient that he can not only win the fight, but he can drain him pretty quickly in the process and then just kind of take over in an ugly, you can't do anything about this kind of way. Uh, I suspect that that would probably be what happened. And, but you still might get something out of it because Tyron is going to be a threat early. And he obviously is going to be very motivated to beat Colby in particular. And Colby, of course, is going to you know ratchet up the tensions fairly significantly as well. So it will still have value for the UFC. And by the way, if Covington gets a win, he's sort of back in that title sweepstakes. I don't know if he gets a title shot, but it would put him like maybe one more or two more wins away, something like that. Um, and as a consequence, that makes him, his degree of relevancy, you know, it reasserts it. For Tyron, while I don't like his chances, you have to acknowledge if he ends up winning, it would be significant for his career at this point. To stop the bleeding and to do it against a rival, it would be huge. This is what I mean about the go big or go home kind of aspect to this. It's just that I don't, at this point, I don't like his chances. I think Colby's probably going to be a bad matchup for him. All right. All right. Jesus, that thing is terrible. Uh, following the, excuse me, following your big announcements, someone said congrats, congrats, excuse me. What does the future hold for this live chat? I'm very glad you asked. Folks have asked, what is the future of the live chat? What is the future of the channel? Um, okay, so here's the good news. Live chat is not going away. Channel is not going away. The only change that I can say definitively that you should... And even then, this is not definitively, but I would, I'm pretty certain this is going to happen. Probably going to move the live chat. Uh, how far? Not far. Um, I don't want to say a day just yet because you never really know, but it would be a little bit earlier in the week. And, uh, but other than that, it would stay the same, same format. I probably would, uh, yeah, I'll say that for now. It probably would stay the same format. And that's about it. Uh, but it's not going to go away. None of that's going to go away. All that will stay the same. So it's not going away. The channel is not going to go away either. Now, obviously, the content is going to change a little bit by virtue of the nature of my job changing. Remember, I was like repurposing a lot of stuff from my other job and putting it here. That will go away. So there's going to be that change and then some other ones that we're still working through. Um so, you know, I start my first day is Monday at CBS, but I don't think the plan for morning combat will really start kicking into gear until maybe the end of September. We're going to take this slow. We're not rushing it through. We're going to plan it all, you know, because the deal kind of came together relatively quickly. So we're going to plan that out the right way. So live chat stays. I doubt it will stay on Friday, but other than that, um, I would expect plenty of YouTube content, plenty of new forms of YouTube content. Lots more morning combat content, lots of different kinds of morning combat content. We're going to lean into this channel and then the morning combat channel in uh, new and interesting ways. So 
There you go. Who do you see as a leading candidate to eventually replace Dana White as the face of the UFC? Mm. I do not know. I do not know. That is such a tough one. He's so uh, he's so synonymous with the position at this point, you know. And everyone is, everyone is replaceable. But I don't think it's Cormier. I don't think that's true. Sonnen has been a name that's been floated out there. Maybe. He's done some promoting on some level, maybe. Um, You know, usually you would get someone else who does a similar kind of position. Would the UFC, what was left of them if Dana quit tomorrow, would they try to recruit Scott Coker? I think he probably has a non-compete, and even then I don't think that they would do that. You know, would you try to get someone from the regional scene, and if then, who would it be? I don't... I don't know. That's not. I don't know that you can replace Dana as such. I think Dana is probably trying to build the business out as much as possible, so that the next person, you know, it's like who. Listen, I've had my criticisms of Dana, but let me make this analogy, if I may. It's like who takes over for Tom Brady. I'm not saying the comparison is apples to apples, but the point being is there's one guy who has command of the offense, who gets to make a bunch of calls. You know, that kind of a thing. And then when the replacement comes in, they have to kind of manage the game. You know, I think they're looking for a game manager at this point. And I think that's what Dana's trying to build. Like, this UFC hotel. I mean, they're trying to build this business in as many reaches, as big and as self-sufficient, as vertically integrated as absolutely possible. So that when the next person takes over, they don't have to make any of these calls. Because I don't know who exactly would have that kind of, like, piss and vinegar ambition. And they can then instead just kind of manage what's still there. And at that point, you still need someone to sell the fights, obviously. But at that point, it becomes much more of like, what are your operational skills? It'll be interesting. It'll be very, very interesting. So I don't really have a good... I mean, Marshall Zelaznik? I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, okay, considering the high amount of eye pokes and groin shots... That result in nothing more than verbal warnings. What do you think of the idea to incorporate fouls into the scoring criteria? Meaning, fouls, excuse me, apologize, even first defense ones, would serve as a tiebreaker in close rounds, similar to how octagon control is currently used. Would that encourage fighters to stay more disciplined? That's interesting. So you wouldn't necessarily call it for like a point deduction. But if I got poked in the eye and it was an otherwise even round all the way through, you would put it down there. That's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. I tend to think it wouldn't have that much of an effect, which would, which would mean it wouldn't affect that much change either positively or negatively. That's an interesting call. Uh, and would it be fair to the fighter to lose a competitive round, possibly even a fight because of a single accidental eye poke well all things being equal it sure to be fair i wouldn't listen if everything is so unique and and even rather i should say is so even to the point where you've got even damage even control even octagon control even you know all whatever the whole listing is and then the last thing you can go to is that it's more than fair because you have no other means by which to adjudicate it and i'd rather have that than a draw yeah, you shouldn't poke a guy in the eye. I mean, I don't know. How, again, I think there's probably a, how many scenarios will you find yourself in where that's the actual tiebreaker. 
Probably very few. I mean, this is the problem with trying to come up with a solution, right? The solution to eye poking is either so weak that it does nothing or so heavy handed that it does too much. No one has quite figured out the Goldilocks answer here because taking a point automatically for an accidental eye poke first time, that can have profound consequences on fight outcomes. So that seems too heavy handed. This one is interesting, but probably seems like too light of a touch. So what's the right in between? This is where I think the technological innovation comes into play. This is where these considerations about, um, you know, what can we do to not even have these scenarios where we're trying to like change rules and police behavior through, you know, policy enforcement. You want to have behavior changed in such a way that policy becomes a measure of either last or near last resort. That would be the best thing. That, that way you could have, because trying to find some kind of elegant policy solution to this problem has mystified everybody. <laughs> it's so difficult to do given the constraints that we have around the scoring system uh, as it stands and, and, and certain incentives that referees have to either take points or not. So to me, the, the right answer appears to be, to the extent possible, find a technological solution and then leave something probably closer to a heavy-handed policy intervention. That marriage is the best one because you won't really get to the policy except for rare circumstances. Generally speaking, does wrestling play into jiu-jitsu? I don't know what you mean by play into. You mean like, does it set itself up for jiu-jitsu to take it over? Something like that? Or in a match of pure wrestling and pure jiu-jitsu with open-ended rules, who will do better? Is that, is, that, is that what you mean? Do you mean in the modern context, does wrestling play in? I, I don't know what the question is really asking. Are you asking, are there particular vulnerabilities about wrestling that jiu-jitsu is uniquely situated to take advantage of? Yes. Will you be paying attention to the actions of Anthony Smith's corner in the Rackage match? Will they still adhere to Smith's policy of not, <clears throat> excuse me, throwing in the towel if he again takes an ungodly amount of punishment. Well, a couple of things. That didn't really happen. I mean, if this was the, I just had Jimmy Smith on. He made a good point. I'll, I'll try to get the video up in time. Namely, for folks who may not realize this, tomorrow's main event is only three rounds. It's not five. It's only three rounds because this was originally the co-main event, I think for Edgar Munoz, and then they moved it. Well, they moved that one a bunch of times. But they moved it, and so this one ended up being just three rounds. So if you go back to Smith versus Teixeira, Smith won the first two rounds clean. And then he got whooped in the third, and it probably would have been a 10-8, which means it would have been a draw, but that's it. And that was a bad beating he took in that third round, but nothing to the point where you wouldn't send him out for the fourth, right? You'd have a nice long talk with him, but you'd send him out for the fourth. There is no fourth. On Saturday. So some of the, yeah, I mean, yes, you're going to pay attention to the cornering. Also the ref, whoever refs this has to know he's got a fighter in Anthony Smith who's not going to quit. And he's got a corner who has a certain belief about cornering that, I won't say precludes, but disincentivizes intervention. Okay. So you have to know that if you're the referee, I think that will be Kind of interesting to see who gets the assignment there. If we don't already know. 
Um, but the good news is, yes, I mean, there can be situations where um, in a three-round fight, a corner stopping it is really important. I mean, we saw one with Max Roshkoff and Austin Hubbard. I would say at the higher end of the game, though, more of these scenarios tend to happen in five-round contests. Not a hard and fast rule, but a I think, again, I don't know if the numbers even bear this out, but like I just think of the ones we've had big disputes over. In general, it's been in five-round contests, right? Where you're really kind of pushed late and the damage is really kind of um, overwhelming. I'm not drinking this fast enough. The sugar is already giving me a headache. Five point eight percent alcohol by volume. Damn, that's like <laughs> y'all should see the 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 triple shots. I never told this story. I remember one time um, there was a time I worked for Glory, and um. This is one of the Denver shows I went to. I don't remember which one it was. And I was working for them. And they had, at the time, this is like true, their their ring girls, I forget, they had a special name for them. Glory Girls, I think they called them. They were hiring literal playmates. Like, if you're 17 or 25, that doesn't mean as much to you. But when I was a kid, Playboy was like, you know, it was it was as cool as cool could be. And it certainly doesn't mean that anymore. But for a time, it really did. And this was sort of the waning years of that, but still it had some notoriety. This must have been like 20, 2013 or so. And all of the glory people afterwards who did want to go out would typically go out to the same places, like as a group. And so I remember I went out once and I was with a buddy of mine and I remember one of the glory girls, she was a very nice person. She was in Playboy. I don't know what year or what month at this point, but I remember she sat down and, you know, these girls, I remember, dude, yeah, so before the fights, they feed you. They feed the production staff. I remember this glory girl one time, I swear to God, she got a half of a chicken breast that was, like, boiled and carrots. And she maybe ate half of it. Like, that was it. No, she had nothing to eat. Different girl than this one, but this is the kind of, like, diet they were on. It was shocking how little. She, I was like, holy fuck. She ate nothing. So, anyway... <laughs> This other one comes and sits down at the table, like my end of the table. She was very friendly and gregarious, talking to everybody. And I remember the waitress comes over and was like, what would you like? And she ordered a triple vodka and soda. And I was like, wow. Her first drink, she's like, I'll have a triple vodka soda. And not even one of those things like, I've had a bad day, nothing. Like, um, okay, I'll have a triple vodka soda and, blah, 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 you know, breadsticks or whatever the fuck. I was like, whoa, she has come to party. I left soon after that. I had a friend in town, but I'll never forget that. I was like, holy fuck. That girl gets busy. Uh, all right. Are there any men's flyweights or women's straw weights who would be considered small for their weight class? That's 125, 115 are the lightest weight classes in their gender. Yeah, there's some, I mean, are you asking, are there natural atom weights and then natural men straw weights? Yes. Not many of them, not ones with super high profiles, but yes. How come a lot of women's MMA records aren't as good as the men's? They seem to all have a couple of losses and some are 50-50 win-lose. Yeah, great question. So the scene has, um, 
the scene has somewhat changed a little bit, which is that there used to be a bit of a bigger problem where women were not afforded many opportunities. And that's still a bit of a problem, although um, a lot less than it was previously, let's say 10, 15 years ago. And at the time, you'd see a lot of women have to take fights on very short notice. They were having a lot of catchweight fights, and it would just create a lot of, you know, oh, this person was supposed to fight X, X fell out, so they brought in Y, Y was 20 pounds bigger than them, and had been training, you know, for somebody else themselves, and, you know, it just ended up creating a lot of weird dynamics. Invicta has gone a really long way in trying to fix that problem, which is we're going to have weight classes, we're going to stick to them, we're not going to do catchweights like these other promotions do, we're going to do MMA for the women's side of the game the right way. Um... I think now what you're seeing is there's probably not as much competitional rotation. Like there are a number of choices on the men's side for you to get, um, you know, in terms of uh, of talent. And yes, there's like you know, if you look at the the men's, excuse me, the women's divisions in the UFC, like there's obviously 15. Well, there's no women's women's flyweight or featherweight's a pretty good example, but. you know, there uh, and that there begin. This is began to be less of a problem. But my my hunch is that there's been. I tend to think that I don't know if this is true. I tend to think there might be more rematches on the women's side of the game, but I can't prove that. But there's just a lot less of them, and so um, you just don't have the same kind of ability to stand out given the lack of diversity of options. That tends to be uh, one of the bigger problems. I'd actually be curious to know that. Where do you see the most rematches? I might be wrong about it. I think that that's true, but someone fact-check that for me. Someone fact-check that for me. Uh, Luke Rockhold said he likes a fight against Darren Till. How would you like to see that fight playing out? Well, I'll say this. If Luke Rockhold can get back to what he was in the first Bisping fight, which the size he probably cannot, but I mean, you know, moving his feet, really getting out of the way, getting a nice lean, which he was doing to stay away from punches and being really active and good timing and... You know, letting his punches and kicks go. I think he can. He was he was great. He was in his jujitsu on the ground is tremendous. You know, there's a lot he can do if he really was able to apply the full, you know, totality of his game. But he looked so flat-footed against Blahovich. He was muscled up, but he was so flat-footed. It was unbelievable. And so the answer is like, how would he do against Darren Till? To the extent he can recapture what was there. In Australia against Michael Bisping, I think he can beat him. I have no idea if that if that version of him can be brought back. Do you think it can? I mean, do I want to go on the record and say it can or it can't? I don't. Uh, but if it's the version that we saw against Blahovich, he has no shot. He has no shot. So it's that simple to me. It really is, at this stage, was that time off for Luke after the loss to um, Blahovich? was it good? I mean, I know he healed his jaw, and I think he said on uh, the Food Truck Diaries, which is out now, I think he said he had, like, labrum surgery and a bunch of other stuff. You know, if he's healed up from that and his head's in the right place and he's enjoying this again and he's going to get... I mean, Luke Rockwell was never, like, super fast with the slips or anything like that. He's got fast kicks, he's got fast hands, but he doesn't have exactly like quick, twitchy, you know, trunk movement in that way. The way he was really good was he would keep distance, that's why kicking was kind of essential for him. He would kind of lean, and then he would really be good about his footwork. Man, he was on his horse. 
And to do that, you got to be kind of light, right? You got to be, or, you know, relative to your how he was against Blahovich. So it's about the footwork. It's about the weight he's at. It's about the commitment to that vision of himself. That 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 Luke Rockhold, in can I mean I don't know if it can beat Adesanya, but or or you know, but I think it can beat just about any other middleweight. You know, or you know, certainly a top three kind of a top four guy. But anything short of that, no, not really. Uh, why are so many MMA media members such giant signalers of virtue on Twitter? Boy, there is an overused accusation. It is that one. Uh, okay, so let's unpack this here for just a second. It is so funny to me. Nobody whines and complains more than this kind of person. I mean, this is the biggest. I'm not saying this person in particular. They may, they may or may not be. But like, it was so funny to me Like after... Um, Dana's speech last night, which was, you know, absurd, but it was so funny because people are like, oh, yeah, are you real mad about it? I'm like, aren't you the person that hits me up every day telling me how mad you are about people in media, whether it's sports media or MMA media or media generally, saying a bunch of things that either hurt your feelings <clears throat> or upset you in some kind of way or something? I mean... Every day, this kind of person is out there talking about this. And these people that support this worldview, these are grievance mongerers. This is what they do. And they have the, the balls to be like, why is everyone else out there, you know, why are you complaining about Dana? This is what we learned from you. This is what y'all do. No one complains more than the people who complain about uh, media in this particular way. And then yesterday, I mean, the, I mean, if you saw anybody who was like, oh, the, the the libs are triggered by Dana's speech, those are people that spend their days on social media triggered from the moment they open that app to the moment they close it, upset at the way you know their people are treated and how everything is actually... They dress it up in like this Horatio Alger nonsense. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a total up from my bootstraps guy. Well, except when it comes to the fact that, you know, the, the, they're not totally wrong. Uh, there are, you know, obviously very powerful forces in society making it may, in many ways uh, unequal and dangerous. That part is true. But then, you know, finding every measure of complaint to say I'm a victim, you know, everyone out there is trying to make me a sucker, blah, blah, blah. I saw Brian Erlacher liking posts saying white people suffer more racial discrimination than any other group. I mean, this is grievance mongering. These are these are people that don't go out there and say, "Wow, what a land of opportunity." These are people that go out there and say, "I am a victim." And they have these are the first ones when people they politically disagree with express similar kinds of sentiments, although redirected to different targets. They forget that they've been grievance mongering for the last four or five years, six years maybe in certain cases. And then get out there and say things like, oh, what's up, Snowflake? You having a hard time? I'm like, bitch, no one whines more than you. No one complains more than you. You just complain about different things and different targets. And you think that that is like speaking truth to power or somehow tough or whatever. It's just whining and complaining. That's all it is. It's just complaining about a different thing. Now, as it relates to virtual virtue signaling... You know, you'd have to identify for me uh, what you're talking about in particular. Because am I going to deny that it happens? Of course not. It happens 
all the time, but the, there are people who are also deranged who can't understand that there might be people who would want to use a platform if they have an audience at all for something along the lines of advancing causes that they find a moral obligation in which to participate. For them, there can be no good faith assessment of this. It can only be some kind of show for the public. It can't possibly be that, like in my case, for example, I believe strongly, I've mentioned this before, in Palestinian causes or you know, immigration reform or you know, whatever your issues are, those are mine. It can't be that I actually think those things. It can only be that uh, any kind of public demonstration is a way to like, hey, look at me. I'd love to get some support. Um, you know, that's a deranged worldview. It's a deranged worldview. So, yes, there is some virtue signaling in the sense of, you know, uh, 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 to the group, hey, everybody, look at me, look how virtuous I am. Sure, it happens. But to be clear, the people who try to police that among other groups, I mean, the, the reality about virtue signaling is that every group does it. They have different mechanisms for it, and they may not even call it that, um, but they all do it. Some might do it more than others, but virtue signaling is not a a practice of a particular demographic or political affiliation or tribal uh, association. It is a function of actually across different species in certain ways, but certainly in the in 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 um, humanity, all groups do it to various degrees. It's just you know this is the this is the way it goes when. You know, here we had we had the Republican National Convention last night. When, um, when black people talk about Black Lives Matter, that's identity politics. When, um, when da- when Donald Trump essentially establishes an order, a, or tries to establish a social order that is absolute, unequivocal, uh, you know, white identity grievance politics. That's just politics. It's a, it's a total failure to recognize in-group virtue signaling. So, yeah, you want to complain about it? Complain about it. But, you know, recognize, A, your folks do it too. And, B, the people who complain about that the most have a total lack of self-awareness. They think that they don't whine. They're the biggest whiners on the Internet. The number one. All right, two quick questions. Do people practice jaw cranks in jiu-jitsu class? Or is that something that's be kind of uncool to do if not in an actual competition? So they definitely practice it to varying degrees. I've seen some people practice it like I'm going to go for chokes, and if I can't get it, then I'll transition to my practicing of the cranks. I've seen people go right to the cranks. People have different kinds of cranks, of course. Like there's many different kinds of chokes, many different applications. Yeah, they definitely practice it. I mean... Um, you know, you might not go for it if you're going for somebody who's not a very advanced student. If you have an advanced one, probably it's no big deal. Some might tell their partners, I'm going to be looking for that, you know, so please don't try and, you know, overly tough out of it. Or you know, there's all, it's like heel hooks, man. Heel hooks 15 years ago were not like people didn't train them, but they were a little bit taboo relative to how they are today. But the reality is you can train just about anyone. If you have someone else there you trust, if you guys are both operating under, you know, hey, what's 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 acceptable here? What's not acceptable? How advanced are they? Do you trust that person to understand the level of those techniques and what your limits are? Like, you know, I know when I roll with this person, a little bit what I'm in for, a little bit what I'm not. All of this can be done safely. 
And to get good at cranks, you have to practice them. You can only be good at the things in which you participate in. You cannot be good at it from afar. You gotta, you gotta really get in there and try. And so, yeah, absolutely, people practice it, and it, it can be done safely. Um, Tony Ferguson is thirty-six and has absorbed considerable amounts of damage. Do you think a loss against Dustin, if that fight happens, ends his chances of becoming the one fifty-five champion? If he loses to Dustin, probably. And that uh, here's the thing, though. Tony has taken some damage. That's true. I mean, that knee surgery he had was big. It didn't even come from a fight, really. The last fight with Gaethje was really bad, right? We can all agree. But it's not like he's taken a bunch of beatings. He's had accumulated damage over time. But it's not like Robbie Lawler, who's had numerous, like, long, bloody fights. Or Vanderlei, who had long, long career of getting KO'd and stuff. That's not really Tony. Tony's been touched up a few times. He's been rocked. He's been cut. Again, he's, he's, I'm not saying he hasn't been, there's no miles on the odometer. Um, but in terms of like beatings, he's only really had the one. Like who else has beaten him up? Like Michael Johnson has a win over him and that was a, you know, a clear win for Michael. But Michael didn't like mess him up. He got messed up against Justin. That was it. So I think he's got like this immediate problem where that last fight, is there any psychological impact? The overall miles that that fight put on him is a lot. But I'm looking at it more like, you know, he's not been in a ton of wars, but just by 36 and being the divisions he's been in, my daughter is right there. Um, um, he's got he's got a lot of miles uh, in that sense. So, th- so this accumulation, not not damaged like, um, you know, Dustin's taken more damage, damage in that way. Maybe in the end, it's a difference without a distinction, but I tend to like somewhat separate the two. Someone who's got a lot of miles by virtue of bloody fights that they've been in win or lose versus, and he's got, he's been in those a little bit, you know, um, you know, he got rocked by Pettis. He got rocked by, he got rocked by Cerrone. He got rocked by uh, Venata, you know. Um. Maybe that's not fair. Let me think about that for a second. No, it's a little bit fair. I tend to think that the natural wear and tear of being in the fight game in elite divisions is somewhat distinct from poignant damage in a high-stakes contest. And the latter, he hasn't quite had a lot of in total. He had one really bad one in the last one. And that is enough. By the way, even that is enough to change a guy. But I don't put that on par with like, you know, at age 36, what Vanderly had taken. It's a little bit different. Uh, any chance you and Jimmy Smith might collaborate in the future? Might maybe have him on as a guest for the CBS platform shows. Yeah, dude, I love to work with Jimmy. He's super smart. I had him on my last show. Happy as a pig and shit that he's taken over because if I was leaving and then they were replacing me with some sh- uh, chump, you know, it'd be terrible for me. It'd be terrible because... People would be like, I mean, I wouldn't take the brunt of it, but people would blame me for, you know, something. But I don't feel like that. I don't have to worry. Jimmy's as talented and and deserving as they come. I think people are not only excited about what Jimmy will bring to the broadcast as his own man, but also, like, dude's been working part-time in MMA since he lost his job with the UFC. And now he has a full-time gig. 
long overdue as far as I'm concerned. Long overdue. So, yeah. I'd love to work with him. Absolutely. When John Jones was serving his suspension, he was experimenting with bulking up and doing heavy lifting. Do you think that that may have contributed to his lack of offense at light heavyweight? I don't think so. I don't think so. I just feel like he's gotten a sense of best practices from what his coaches have taught him. I think he believes in it. And by the way, it's worked. I mean, he hasn't actually lost. I thought he lost the Reyes fight, but, you know, he didn't. Um, I just think that there was a certain... His old offense was born of... Like, the, if you guys you may not remember this, but some of you may have, some of you might not. There was a big deal, like, when he was he was teaching himself stuff off of YouTube when he first got to the UFC, and he would it would work, you know? So not all the time, but enough where you were like, wow, he learned that off of YouTube? That's amazing. And he was with Team Bomb Squad at the time up in uh, Endicott, New York, and then eventually he relocated to uh, Jackson Wink when I think he realized that he needed to take his game to the next level. And when he did that, they kind of took away some of that spontaneity and, you know, rough around the edges stuff. And that, you know, it didn't really cost him uh, all that much early, but you've seen this sort of gradual, you know, um, gradual move towards what you consider more conventionality is what I would, the way I would describe it. And with that, an age and time, this is why I say I think his offense has deteriorated. He it's still very good, but it's like if you watch the guy and the weapons he chose when he beat Shogun and the freedom he had to just throw. And I know everyone's like, "Oh, Shogun had no knees. Shogun was the fucking champion when he beat him." I'm not saying that was the exact same Shogun as we had in Pride, but this idea that he was like washed or some shit. Sorry, I just don't at all buy that, not even a little bit. And John demolished him and John was throwing everything he wanted to and taking risks and you know that kind of thing has just sort of slowly eroded and with it it has left something that is very reliable and very effective but not especially menacing whereas his defense has gotten to me just extraordinary just exquisite I mean he's hard to land on He's hard to take down. He's hard to pressure. He's hard to control. He's hard to to grab a collar tie on for fuck's sake. Like if he doesn't want you to have it, you're not going to have it. That is to me where he is. That is why he's going to be relevant probably for a long time if he wants to be. Because his offense, while not what it once was, still very good. And his defense is outrageously good. The numbers all support that. His takedown defense is extraordinary. Nearly 70% of shots thrown his way uh, miss him or are blocked. Um, He's exceptional. He's exceptional in that regard. I don't know it has anything to do with lifting. Is Anderson Silva's English still that bad? No, but you got to understand, man, people who have to work, especially in in the public eye, in a second language, they have a lot of... You know, they think it always sounds worse than it does. And it takes a lot of coaxing to get them to speak in that language. I suspect if he was just, you know, at Starbucks and had to make small talk with someone while he was waiting for his Frappuccino or whatever, he could do it just fine. He'd be just fine. If he was lost and looking for directions, I I bet he'd be fine. But, you know, you have to be comfortable with that kind of a thing. And people aren't, you know, talking in a foreign language, man, it's hard, bro. I've told that story here, you know. 
where I went to order food and they were all laughing at me. But what are you supposed to do? Like, that's how you get better. All right, there's been recent speculation about John's game deteriorating because he's not on PEDs anymore. Yep. What if he beats Stipe and Nganu? Do you think some of the PED talk overshadowing his legacy will go away? Yes. It seems like it'd be hard to deny his greatness if he has a historic run at heavyweight. I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? You legitimately cannot have it both ways. Either USADA is like, the, the, the adults in the room. By the way, did you see they busted an 80-year-old lady today? who'd been taking medication, uh, and this medication in particular, since 2005. You think I'm making that up? That's on their fucking website now. They busted an 80-year-old lady. Great job. <laughs> Streets are safe now. Mm. Mm. Feel so good about what they're doing. Getting geriatrics. Wonderful job. <laughs> I can't believe some of y'all buy into their bullshit, but okay. It can't be both. It can't be that they're here to clean this, this whole scenario up and that John can operate in the USADA era, go up a weight class, and beat, if he beats Stipe, the consensus greatest, at least UFC heavyweight of all time, if not more than that, uh, all under their watchful eye while he's been tested, which you can measure and look at, and that he was trash. I mean, you could make the argument, oh, he was on it and then got off of it, and he's still so good that even when he's off of it, he's still ahead of his peers. Okay. You can make that argument if you want, but you're still saying even off of it, he's still ahead of the peers. You know, I mean, you're you you're making your own argument for me. So um, it absolutely will. Now, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I'll just say, sure. You know, e either USADA is effective or it isn't, and you need to decide. Because what you can't say is they're effective. Well, you know, you said John was using. Oh, he's still using. He's just getting away with it. Can't be both. Pick one. Either they're effective or they're not. And if they are, and he's winning, it will have to change some of the narrative about him. But he'll never fully outrun it. I mean, dude, they had to move an event on a week's notice across state lines for him. UFC 200 went tits up, like, you know, and every other issue he's had you know, after beating Cormier the second time. Like, you know, these things will live with you. You can never not have them. But that will, I think, shift some of the discussion in his favor a little bit more positively Luke what are your thoughts on the Lionel Messi situation you know I have mixed feelings um, I have three takes from that very quickly because I know some of you are like soccer I'm uh, one fuck Barcelona bitch that's my first take. Eat a dick, Barcelona. Fuck all y'all. Wonderful city, actually. I, it's actually a beautiful place. If you've ever been there, Barcelona's a phenomenal place to visit as a city. But fuck that team. Mes K un club, you arrogant pricks. Your stadium is shit. I've been to it twice. It's overrated. It's not nearly as good as the Santiago Bernabeu, which is being updated, by the way. I guess I guess that place is too. But, you know, Mes K un club. Fuck off. Fucking separatists anyway. You know, I mean... Yeah, you know, fuck Barcelona, the team, not the city. The city is wonderful. Spain's a great place. Uh, so that's my first reaction. My second reaction is it's probably bad for La Liga, man, because you've got you know the consensus best player right now, basically more or less, and he'd be he's not staying in La Liga. He's not going to go to Madrid or Atletico, right? 
Was he going to go to fucking Sporting Gijon? No. He's going to go to Inter Milan, they say. Um, maybe he'll end up in Premier League or something. But he's probably going to go to Syria or, um, or he'll go to England, which is good for those leagues, especially if you had Ronaldo and Messi in Serie A. So I think it's bad for La Liga. The other thing I would say, and lastly, is I feel like this is like this is the reminder that the Messi and Ronaldo era is dying and the Mbappe era is upon us. It's sort of what it feels like to me, you know what I mean? But if I didn't mention it before, fuck Barcelona. Uh, okay. I've noticed multiple instances of refs warning fighters about their opponents being downed fighters. Do you agree or disagree with this practice? I agree with it. I feel like knowing the rules is part of a fight, but I also see how it prevents DQs and convoluted situations. I would personally prefer that they wouldn't do that, though. No, I like it. <laughs> I like it. They are, the rules are different state to state, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Help these guys out. Make it clear, you know, let's avoid stupidity. I agree we shouldn't have to do that. And if we had more uniformity as it relates to these practices... We wouldn't need it, but that's not what we have, so we need it. Uh, I think you mean Brian Campbell recently described DC as a bridesmaid. While this may be an apt analogy, strictly speaking, does the fact that he may have the most impressive, comprehensive two-weight record in MMA history subvert this claim? Yes, to an extent it does. That's why his MMA resume is not like his wrestling resume where he never reached um, the highest level. Well, he reached the highest level in terms of the, uh, um, you know, the class of athlete he was, he was, but not in terms of the prizes that were available. Um, yes, it does. I mean, the problem is, it's like if you were the champion in one weight class because one guy was gone, and then he comes back and he beats you handily, however much controversy you want to say about that, and beat him before that too, and then you go up a weight class, and he has the win over Stipe, but he had two more chances to prove it wasn't not accidental, but that it was evidence of a disparity between them and he couldn't do it um you know it's not like the other accomplishments go away he did win the strike force grand prix and he you know he did it starting in his 30s for crying out loud so it, it is to say as a two-weight world champion he has across two weight classes he has a fairly complete resume or very complete resume as it relates to that but the specifics of each individual camp. I mean, the reason why it works is because he did so well at heavyweight and so well at light heavyweight that the combined forces of that make it the greater than the sum total of its parts. But if you look at just the light heavyweight campaign or just the heavyweight campaign, there was somebody better in every case. And so you, and so that you end up kind of focusing on each one at a time rather than looking at the broader picture. And, and that's a fair point to raise. Um, but it's hard to class. Like, how do you classify that? We think so strictly in terms of people who, if they go away classes, they either have no success or they dominate. And he is kind of in this middle ground where he did a lot of successful things, but not relative to people in his time who did more. And that's hard to understand. Uh, what is your? I think we went over this last weekend. What is your opinion on the way Sean? And I saw y'all all disagreeing with me. Okay. What is your opinion on the way Sean O'Malley is handling his loss as he's constantly making excuses that seem contradictions to his earlier statements? I don't know about the contradictions. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just not it's not clear to me exactly what he was what he said that was contradiction. 
it's like, dude, I'm not defending it as like I think it's great. Or if I was his friend and buddy, I'd be telling him this is a good thing. The guy's a 25-year-old prize fighter. And you're all like, oh, he's handling this unprofessionally. Do you know how many 25-year-old prize fighters handle shit unprofessionally? And like, what do you want? You want to get on camera and say a bunch of shit they don't believe? Like, if you are trying to say things you don't believe because you believe in the value of sportsmanship and it's something that's a practice you want to keep up because you're, you believe that's what high character people do, then okay, there's still a little of dishonesty there, but it's, it's done for, I think, um, understandable reasons. But in general, I kind of like people to just say what they believe. You don't have to like it. I'm not telling you you have to like it, but he's telling you he thinks he's better than this guy and you might think that that's crazy. That's fine. Disagree with him. But he's being totally honest. You may think delusional, but that delusion is a function of his candor. This is what they believe in their head. He's just telling you out loud. This is what most of them believe in their heads after losses. I've had these private conversations with fighters all the time. They talk just like that when the camera's not rolling. So to y'all, it might be like, oh, he's totally out to lunch. It's right in keeping with what I hear from people's coaches, from what I hear from fighters themselves. I hear it all the time. I hear him all the time, and they curse the other guy. who, And then they get on the, the cameras, and it's like, you know, he deserved the win, and blah, 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 blah. I don't get, I don't get bent out of shape about it. Uh, I don't like people. I, I, don't, I don't think that Chito Vera is a journeyman. He's not a journeyman. He's very talented. You know, Sean should wake up to the fact that he lost to a really good fighter. Um, I think that's the truth more than anything else. But, you know, one of the problems about working in this business is it's filled with the weirdest people you've ever met. One of the good parts is that I don't get hung up on shit they say in the media or on their own podcasts or anything else unless it's truly, you know, totally out to lunch. That kind of a thing. Cannot tell you how many UFC champions I've talked to off the record that have talked a gang of shit about um, fighters they fought. And when the cameras were rolling, completely different. That's why I'm like, <laughs> that's why I don't do interviews that much anymore. You know, it's like, <sighs> are you worried about the amount of hate police are experiencing? What does that mean? You mean like violent acts on them? Um, yes, I would never want any uh, police to... Uh, my stepfather, I had a stepfather for a time. He was a police officer for nearly 30 years in Washington, D.C. And he got hospitalized one time. They broke 17, I think, something like that. Some absurd number of his ribs, something crazy. Um, and he was in the hospital for months. Um yeah, of course you don't want anything like that to happen to people who, you know, are... Uh, so I've read a lot of the... I had never, I'll, I'll be candid. I, I try to stay current with things. I, I'm like probably many of you. I didn't know what defund the police meant when I began to hear it circulated in the public. And the reality is that it actually means a lot of different things, which their supporters don't tell you because they don't seem to believe that, but it's really true. I have heard... Um, I've heard every version of it from defund the police means to defund the current police force, restructure it under a different set of constraints and then job responsibilities, and then refund that, um, which I don't think is that bad of an idea. 
I've heard some being like, hey, just cut their budgets, you know, or uh, or just get rid of them altogether. What we need is just like, you know, community fucking organizing or whatever the, I forget what the term is for the kind of abolition of that kind of thing that they're talking about. I mean, I say a couple of things. I think most of you would agree, guys, we have way too many people in jail in this country. I don't care whether you're left or you're right. Certainly you would agree with that. And that is a function of the fact of our laws and what the cops are required to do. And the cops are required, I mean, anybody can admit this, the cops in this country, they have to deal with the uh, many things that they should not be dealing with. Mental health um, uh, issues, not their, not merely their own, but, uh, but that's not what I'm referencing, but I mean about with people out in society when there should be you know, essentially social services for these kinds of people or other folks tasked with those responsibilities. Now, obviously, if it gets violent, it begins a, a different story, but you know, there's many, 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 many cases where that's not going to be one. Why, why are we asking? And the cops will tell you that they don't want to do that kind of shit. You know, they have to deal with the absolute dregs of society all day long. It has to take a mental toll. And part of the reason why it has to take a mental toll is, you know, I think a lot of our, all of it is connected. I think a lot of the way our social programs work have created an unequal and broken society. And then we task one essentially uh, uh, arm of the government to handle all of these various responsibilities. And it becomes way too taxing. We recruit them, I think, um, inappropriately. We train them inappropriately. We arm them inappropriately. Other problems I would say is um, I'm not super anti-Second Amendment. I don't think that that's a reasonable uh, position you can adopt. Um, but I don't know what you're... I read, a, I read this book by Radley Balco, uh, Rise of, I think it's called Rise of the Warrior Cop. And it talks about the... Really, since the 1960s, there's been this progressive militarization of the police. But in, in congruence with that, at least not since the 60s, but certainly since the 80s and beyond, there has been a militarization of the citizenry. Look at this guy, Kyle Rittenhouse, walking around you know, with an AR-15. And people are like, oh, the AR-15 is not nearly as strong as the M16A2 service weapon, which is true. They're not even operated the same. But the AR-15, and I fired an AR-15 in a million times, the AR-15 is, it makes an idiot much deadlier than they would be with, let's say, a bolt-action uh, weapon and rifle. It is an idiot's way of causing mass damage. Right? It does not take a sophisticated handler. Um, it does, and a lot of times, the, you know, over time, you would need someone who can maintain the weapon through proper cleaning and care. But a lot of times, they don't have these weapons for a long period of time before using it in some kind of catastrophic way. I mean, it, it, yes, some of the arguments that anti-Second Amendment people make are just totally divorced from reality about. You know, what is an assault weapon? And a lot of times, it can be pistol grip. It can be, you know, whether the sights are, you know, slightly different than something you would see from a military issue. Anyway, all of these problems are connected from the way the social programs work to what we task the cops with, to social inequality, to the the the, the country being awash in uh, weapons, to the fact that if you're a 20-year-old person, 19-year-old person, you only know an America that has been at war. Endless war, endless war in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and then this pervasive militarization of our citizenry all of that and and i think we can all agree uh just hope most of us rationally can agree there has been just system i know if you're a ben shapiro listener this will sound controversial to you 
but it shouldn't be. But for a long time, blacks have not been treated as equally as whites in this country. And they're, you know, the amount of evidence for that is overwhelming, which makes Ben um, not a credible speaker in this regard. But either way, they're sick of it and beginning to push back. And, you know, the abundance of camera phones has shed light on these situations in ways that um, we never really had access to before. It is a massive confluence of problems and social conditions and technological um, emerging realities and you know economic inequality. I mean, everything is conspiring, and the cops are the fault line in many cases around these issues and how they are fought and where they are fought and who gets to say what. And so they have to end up eating an absolute shit sandwich, and they have been radicalized in a way where they're just going ham on, not, not the ones that deserve it, but the ones who don't, going ham on, not rioters, but protesters, going ham on, you know, unarmed, uh, you know, whoever. I mean, a million of these scenarios, putting a knee on the back of George Floyd's neck and whatever. Um, so there, this is not a question of police reform, per se. That probably couldn't hurt. This is not a question of, Wep- um, uh, of, of regulation around weapons that couldn't hurt. To me, this is an enormously broad question about how are we going to, uh, what kind of economic and social policy do we want to tackle problems? To what extent are we going to live with poverty and various forms of inequality? What are the social outcomes of that inequality as it relates to alcohol, drug abuse, domestic violence, truancy, whatever? Um, what does it do to neighborhoods? What kind of taxpayers does it recruit? What kind of home ownership happens there? And then what kind of money do we give to the services that want to deal with this? How do we segregate those services? What are these services up against with an armed citizenry? Why is the citizenry armed? And ha- what does that have to do with us having, um, you know, the, the country being awash in firearms and this endless wars? It is not one thing. It is all of this getting mixed together, and it is an absolute mess. America is a mess right now, unfortunately. It's a mess. (laughs) It's a huge mess. So am I worried about some guy getting on beat, and he has to go into someone's home, and he's really never done anything wrong, and he shows up to somebody's house, and that fucking asshole is beating his kids, and he's armed to the teeth? And this cop is wondering, how the fuck am I the bad guy? Yeah, of course I do. But I also have you know, deep uh, sympathy for over-policed neighborhoods, like when New York had stop and frisk, which did nothing. It did nothing to bring down crime, you know, except uh, it alienated the community from the police and sent a lot of innocent uh, or otherwise people that did not need to go to jail uh, or through the prison system. It did. It was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. So yeah, it's really it's really um, an enormously complicated problem. I'll do one more of these. Um, do you think that corners would stop fights for their fighters' safety much more often if it wasn't a fact that in doing so, they are cutting their fighters' pay in half? The thing is, I would I used to believe that, and I, I'm not saying I don't. I don't. If I had to rank the reasons why it happens, that's fairly low on the list now. Because in boxing, I've seen them where they stop it when the guy is making 500 a check. 
I just, I just don't think that that's the reality. I think there's something much more deep seated going on there that it frankly makes it a bigger problem. Listen, there's plenty of reasons to not segregate money between win and bonus and all that kind of stuff. And I'm all in favor of it. Please don't misunderstand me. And it might have an effect. But I don't really think that solves the problem. I tend to think it's going to be other things. Yeah? Okay. With that in mind, let me get to your paid questions. I appreciate everyone who donates. You never have to. All right. Let us get to it now. Shit. There's one I'm missing here. Let me see if I can read. Ah, fuck. Hang on. See if I can read it. Hang on. I'm going to try and print this out here. Sorry, the thing is not the best way to get it. Uh, this person asks, do you think there should be a minimum placed on the number of fights a fighter should have to be eligible to compete in the UFC? No. Again, you want to have promotional flexibility with that. Absolutely. All right, now we go to the next one. Luke, are you still learning Spanish? I am. I am too, but the anxiety when speaking to natives holds me back. Here we go. Your story about being laughed at in the fast food place didn't help matters. That's the way to do it, man. That's the only way to do it. You got to go and fail. That's the reality about learning a language. Not that I'm very good at Spanish, but you know, I know enough at this point to know you got to get in there and just... You just got to try, and you're going to make a plenty of mistakes, and you're going to hate yourself for it, and that's how you get better. That's it. In retrospect, which heavyweight fight meant more to MMA history, DC versus Miocic 3 or Fedor versus Crow Cop? Still a little fresh. Um, God, one is a trilogy, and one was a one-off. They're so different. Um, man, that's a great question. My hunch is to say Fedor Krokop, but I think that might just be bias uh, that I have. Uh, that's a great, I don't know. I have to think about that one. That's a great question. It's a really great question. For grappling strength, would heavy sandbag carries translate better than barbell lifts? Khabib doesn't lift heavy. Rather, he got crazy strong after years of picking up and taking down guys his size. Yeah, sure. I mean, you would want to talk to an expert about this. But um, Roddy Ferguson, when he was working on his grip strength for judo, he would take a gi and then throw it over like a pull-up bar rather than just doing pure pull-ups. And he would grab the gi and then use the gi to do pull-ups. So he's working a lot of the same muscle groups, although the gripping is going to be different if you're just across a bar versus kind of a gi that's going to hang where the hands are closer together. But still... Um, he would use that to like pull himself up side to side. So he'd have really strong grips on the bar. Um, you know, a lot of times for people like, Oh, how do you get your traps big? A lot of people just do shrugs or kind of upright rows. You know how to get your traps big, especially for like the center of your trap and the mid back, take a big ass stone or sandbag. If you can hold it close to your chest with as best posture as you can and just walk with it. That thing will fry your traps super strong. Hi, Luke. I'm one of the few liberal MMA fans. Do you think current culture in MMA of assaults, racism, misogyny, and toxic masculinity will change? I just, rather than weighing in on being a left-right thing, I tend to think that, um, I think a lot of what passes for 
how do I say this exactly? A lot of the behavior that you see now is a function of the society in which we live. So to the extent I think we see societal norms change, you'll see some of this behavior change. Don't you think NBA players would have more leverage and impact if they did this before resuming the season in July? Now they just seem flimsy. I, I mean, that was what Kyrie Irving was saying. I didn't agree with it at the time. I guess maybe there's a little bit more validity to it now. Here's the thing. If they did nothing, people would be like, oh, they did nothing except put up Black Lives Matter on their jerseys. If they do something, everyone's like, oh, it's not enough. Now, you guys know, to me, when someone puts a microphone on their face and they're like, what about Chinese, Uyghur Muslims and you guys doing business over there? And they're like, oh, sorry, what? I didn't hear you. Got to go. My name is LeBron. Peace out. You know, they look like absolute shells of themselves and just total hypocrites. And there is a real hypocrisy in what the NBA is doing. And NBA fans, and I count myself as one, they don't want to admit it. On the other hand, um, I will say that, you know, the NBA being 75% black and then focusing their efforts on what they see as important issues related to the their communities at home seems like very much an understandable and defensible practice. You don't have to agree with it, but I don't think that, like, People think you can only be one or the other. Oh, they're tremendous hypocrites or they're saviors. I don't see them as either. I see them as both. They are clearly hypocrites. I mean, when it comes to doing business in China, they don't give a fuck. And also at the same time, NBA teams have started this practice of making sure that their sporting facilities are open so that their communities that they serve can um, uh, be uh, ready for elections and be used on those days to make sure they can process as many people as possible. Like, how is that a bad thing? That seems like a very good thing. Um, no matter what your perspective, like they're doing it, the, the nationals are doing it here in DC. They're going to open up Nats park over in Southeast. And that's a community that has, a lot of it's been pushed out and gentrified, but what's left of them can come down there and it can service a ton of people at once. How is that bad? That seems very fair to me. Like, if you disagree with what had happened around Jacob Blake, meaning you don't buy um, the supporters' account, okay, but what meaningful reforms are they calling for? If it, you know, and again, we can debate those; that's fine. But you know, you're calling for, as far as I can tell, um, for the most part, meaningful pieces of legislation that have wide bipartisan support. You know, they're not calling for Black Lives Matter to become a political party that gets an automatic 50 seats in Congress or some shit. You know, uh, so I, I I think that you just have to understand people can be heroes about certain issues and villains about others at the exact same time. And I think that's what, you know, the NBA's callousness about what is happening in China is something you should not let go of. On the other hand, that is not a reason to discount what can be real demonstrable progress um, for people's right to vote, man. Like, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? I don't understand how you could be against the establishment of wider voting places that service, um, you know, more people who have expressing their right to vote. Oh, because it's all rigged and fucking, it's tons of voter fraud. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, here on earth, that's not a problem. Uh, have you ever trained with someone who had the talent and physicality to be a UFC level fighter, but had zero interest in fighting professionally? Yeah. One time got to train with a dude who was on the Mongolian judo team. And that was a <laughs> humbling experience to put it mildly. You're like, Oh, right. There's a different level to this. 
Have you ever read The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash or watched any Adam Curtis docs like Hypernormalization or The Century of the Self? I have not, unfortunately. I will take a look, though. Do you think Jan is being overlooked in the title fight? Yeah, even I'm probably overlooking him to agree. Jan has this kind of resume that just snuck up on everybody. It's like, oh, he beat Corey Anderson. Oh, well, people didn't like Corey, right? But here's the thing. Corey beat him pretty convincingly the first time, and he couldn't do shit to him the second time. He knocked out Luke Rockhold. He gave Gustafson problems. Gustafson won, but he gave Gustafson problems. He's just been this guy who kind of late in life had a, not a resurgence, but a sort of a series of surprising moments. And so because of that, people are, have a problem adding it up into a new picture for him. They kind of just adjust the old one. Um, but yeah, I think he's, I think I had a, who did I have on? I had Anthony Smith. I said, who wins between Reyes and Blahovich? He thought Blahovich wins. So, I, you know, he's a tough guy. What would be your top five workout hip-hop songs? Jesus, I don't even know. Um, probably Cold, Dark, and Empty. Oh, I'll try. Cold, Dark, and Empty, Vinnie Paz. Scenario 2008 by Re-Up Gang. Um, what's in my phone? Top, top five, you say, right? Top five? What do I got in my phone here? Um, and So It Burns by Jedi Mind Tricks. I put that up there. Um, oh, Onion Head, Sean Price. That's four, right? So I got one more. What's one that I go to all the time? I would go with, oh, gotta be Heavy Metal Kings, Jedi Mind Tricks and Ill Bill. Easy, easy call. Uh, any chance that it will be an MMA beat or MMA uncensored type of show on Showtime with you being there full time? Uh, you mean like morning combat? <laughs> I think you mean something different, like a panel of journalists and shit, you know? Um, you're asking why I have a screwdriver because I had to fix my mount here. Sorry, I know it's kind of weird just to have it. Also, I'm drinking one. Hey. Um, no, I mean, not. that's not my immediate plan. So I think where you're going to see me is a lot more morning combat, a lot of extra stuff on YouTube, um, Showtime Boxing, and then there's other stuff in the works I just don't want to get into yet because it's not firmed up. But that will be at least some of the places you'll see me. But it'll be much more than that, but that's like a start, you know. Uh, my friend Raphael gave a, gave a two-piece there. Thank you, Raphael. I appreciate it. Luke, congrats on the new job. So does this mean you get to go to big UFC events as press? And when's your JRE appearance going to be? Yeah, probably um, because I'm going to have to do some stuff for CBS Sports HQ. So I think they want to do that. You know, there's a lot of things I want to do with those. I don't want to just go to media day and shit. I want to do a lot more than that. So we'll see how that goes. You know, again, I don't want to say a whole lot just yet, but be on the lookout. And as far as JRE, I'm glad you asked. I actually spoke to Joe this week because we hadn't really been in contact he actually hit me up to uh, congratulate me on the um, on my new job, and so we were talking, and um, we were talking about him moving and stuff like that. Anyway, he wanted to like make sure I knew that like the invite is still there. He wants to get me on, so I might travel. We don't know yet. I might travel for work very soon, and if I do, and again, it'll be the whole COVID protocol and everything. And if I do and it goes okay, I will probably try and set something up with him for maybe the end of this year. 
So no no guarantees just yet, but we actually did speak this week. And um, yeah, so it's still on. Reaction to Walt Harris running for city council. I didn't know he was doing that. Good for him. What fighter would make the best statesman? Probably Brian Stan. Pack or big? Big. Jay-Z or Nas? Nas. Eminem or Kanye? Well, they're different. Who's a better MC? Eminem. Who's a better producer? Kanye. Um, should or could larger fighters emulate the striking games and system of smaller fighters effectively? Or is size a huge factor? It is a huge factor. Is Rakic copying Jan's game? No, Jan's game is much more open-ended and, you know, iterative and... No. Um, yes, you can borrow certain things, but the footwork and the speed and the agility and the in and the out, that kind of movement, it's going to be very difficult for them to emulate that. Plus, they're not going to have the same power, so they're not going to have the same motivation. You know, a larger fighter is going to be able to crack in certain ways that a smaller fighter is probably not going to be able to, and that will affect what punches you like, you know, what speed you can deliver them with, how fleet of foot you are, that kind of a thing. How do you think Prohodjka will do against the top five, top five guys at 205? Dude, it's open-ended. If you guys ask me on light heavyweight, it's open-ended, man. Anybody can win that. You mentioned Shab got you a bottle of whiskey. What kind, and have you had any yet? No, I've not had it. It's called Rei. Um, R-E-R-E-I, I believe. It's like a Japanese whiskey. Um, I don't want to tell you why he sent me that, but it's very good news for him. Uh, yes, it's called R-E-I Ray, Rye. I'm not sure you pronounce it exactly. He sent me that and I've not had it yet, but I am told it is, uh, quite good. I'm going to have, I'll probably have some today. As a matter of fact, it's my wife's birthday. So happy birthday to my wonderful wife. Um, recommend Knob Creek, bitch. I've been drinking Knob Creek. I don't drink beam. Someone goes like, if you're a beam fan, <laughs> Sean Shirk, I said this before. You guys have probably heard this before. Uh, here we go. Watching Luke talk about politics is like watching Stephen A. Smith talk about MMA. First of all, it's not that bad. Second of all, I do all these donks who do it, and then you ask them to like delineate their views, and they sound like, you know, the elephant man trying to recite the alphabet backwards. But to the point of this one, um, I don't drink Beam because I think it's good. Sean Shark did something once. He did like this old UFC show where they watched him train, and he would eat this like patty. And they're like, what's in this patty? Like, is it, is it meat? What is it? And he's like, it's this combination of this, 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 this. And I put it in a thing. And they're like, does it taste good? He goes, no. And they go, well, why do you eat it? He goes, I don't eat for taste. I eat for performance. And I was like, right. I don't drink Jim Beam for taste. I drink it for performance, right? How quick will it get me drunk? Pretty quick, pretty quick. Luca, and cheaply, that's the key. Luke, uh, congrats, I've been following your YouTube content for years. I finally started listening to your radio show this week. <laughs> At least you got it in. Uh, call in today. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. You're the best. Looking forward to watching you on CBS. Um, can you make a Stay Frosty shirt? Yeah, I've been meaning to. Uh, Dom Reyes beats Izzy all day at 2.05. That seems quite bold, but maybe. Uh, Luke, why after every big fight you always have some kind of complaints? Literally, I always listen. Yes, but I also always have all kinds of praise. I have plenty of both. Are you interested in starting a political show? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Um, 
Thinking about it. Thinking about it. Can you explain the 50-50 position in BJJ? Yes. Uh, and why ankle picks are so easy to obtain from this position. Ankle picks? Ankle picks you get standing. Is it a tricky submission to avoid? Or is it just, an, you mean heel hooks? Here's how it goes. These are my two legs facing out in front of you. This is my left leg. This is my right leg. A 50-50 uh, position would be this is my left leg. This is your right leg. If your right leg was entangled, almost it's not quite scissoring, but just like this. So this is your right leg. This is your left leg. This is my left leg. This is my right leg. So our right legs both uh, uh, entwine here. Right? So that is 50-50. Essentially, is a neutral position. That's the idea. You have one leg on the outside, and the inside legs would be tied like that. That is 50 50. But ankle pick is when you shoot low and then grab the ankle and then pull. That's an ankle pick. Loved your interview with Israel Adesanya. For me, he is my favorite. Too many weapons. But Paulo Costa has grown on me. I have a Paulo Costa tape study coming probably Monday or Tuesday. Be on the lookout. Are you going to watch Bigfoot Silva's new fight? Fuck no, I am not. Um, your thoughts on Lawler being a plus 215 underdog against Neil Magny. So that one's going to go one of two ways. Neil Magny's going to put the reach on him and then the cardio and then the distance and then the footwork. And then 38, 39, whatever he is, year old Robbie Lawler is just going to be outpointed. Or at some point, Magny's going to make a mistake and eat a huge shot. Really, there's only two ways it could go. It's a three-round contest. Magny's pretty good about pouring it on. He's gotten better about being in the clinch and getting his back off the cage when he needs to. 215 seems a little high, but favoring Neil Magny against this version of Robbie Lawler, I don't think is crazy. So let's just say it louder for the donks in the back. I try, player. I try. Imagine a prime Diego Sanchez versus Tony Ferguson. It'd be so fun. If you've never seen Diego Sanchez versus Nick Diaz, you should see it. Would you have Tulsi Gabbard on? Sure. You have a Discord? No. I mean, I wouldn't vote for her, but yeah, get her on. Can we get a Luke Thomas Ura from a fellow discharged Marine? Ura. Yut. This ain't cameo, bro, although I appreciate the fiver. Have I traveled to Mexico? No. Costa Rica or Chile? No. I'm dying to go. Um, talk briefly about your travels to Latin America. Puerto Rico I've been to. Um, certainly all over Colombia I've been to. And then, you know, airports throughout parts of Central America. I don't know if that really counts. I've uh, been to Panama, places like that. Um, yeah, it's, you know, all these places are wildly different. Argentina, they believe that they're closer to Europe culturally than they do the rest of Latin America. Brazil, need I tell you, certainly its own kind of thing. Colombia and Ecuador and Venezuela were all Bolivarian states, so they're a little bit similar. Especially with some of the food, because you have sort of mountainous regions, regions between in the Andes between um, Colombia and Ecuador, um, you know. Um, but you know the, these places are all wildly different in and of themselves. Like and you have the mountains of Bogota, you have sort of the flat plains of the Antioquia, Medellin region uh, on the coast. Cartagena is completely different. They don't even sound the same. I can barely understand people in Cartagena. I can understand them just fine in Bogota. No problem. Um, the, the Spanish is really clear there. On the coast, they don't say the letter S ever. They don't ever say the letter S. 
And by the way, you'll hear Jorge Masvidal do this a little bit too. Like anybody from that coastal region, so like Puerto Ricans do it a little bit, Dominicans, um, Cubans do it a little bit too. Uh, you know who does this as well is um, UL Romero. He won't say the letter S. So instead of saying, um, you know, um, you know, me gusta la música, right, which is a very gringo way to say it, but me gusta la música. So there's the gusta and there's the música. The música. So you have the two S's. It would sound something like me gusta la música. <laughs> it's like if you're not used to hearing that, you're like, I'm sorry, what the fuck do you say? You know, and, they, and they'll do it for they'll just drop syllables and they'll drop letters and, you know. They'll, they'll blend two together. It's like, what the fuck? Um, it's hard for someone like me. I, and if you're asking where I got laughed at, it was actually not in Cartagena. It was actually in Bogota. So that was awesome. Is there a way to know who the judges to a fight will be prior to the fight? Um, sometimes the commission will announce it. And the bigger commissions, California, Nevada, that kind of thing. Jersey. Would you have an MK beat with Chuck, Jeff, and BC? No. 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 I, I'm done with the MMA beat. MK is MK is not beat light or something or beat part two. It's its own thing. And I don't want to... I would do a podcast with those guys, but not like not as part of morning combat. No. Oh, Jesus. I'm from Ireland, and I listen to Alex Jones. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you going against him? Because he is a a proven, habitual, grifting liar. I mean, um, who has tortured the families of innocent victims and is being sued until the ends of his pennies for those very reasons. What do you think of Rogan's friendship with him? Uh, I think it's a mistake on Rogan's part, and I don't understand it other than I think he's probably a very loyal guy. But I don't know how you end up being friends with a monster like that. Fuck that guy. Dana's comments on Bellator, do you agree? No, of course not. But, like, it's not a big deal. He's a promoter, right? I mean, Corey Anderson was not let go because he sucks. He was let go because he's probably not going to be a world beater, and I guess they don't think he's exciting, and he, I guess, was viewed as a malcontent. Ryan Bader, you know, I guess the Nemkov win doesn't really do a lot for his stock, but I don't think his days as a winning light heavyweight are over. Someone says, I support Kamala Harris. Man, fuck Kamala Harris, too. I don't like her. You guys never hear me come on. Everyone's like, oh, you love all that damn shit. You guys never hear me come on and ever espouse those people. Ever. Ever. You've never heard me do it. Never. Not once. There's a reason for that. Anyway, to the point here. Um, and Ryan Bader's pretty good. Nemkov's pretty good. Is the division as good? No, it probably is not as good. But... Um, either guy is going to position themselves to may, be made to look their best. And they're both wrong for clear and obvious reasons. This is what promoters do. This is why when people talk about like who's going to replace Dana, right? Who's willing to say shit like this? Because you have to do it to be a promoter. Um, Aussie fans here, do you think Craig Jones could move to MMA? Yes. How would you see him going? Without seeing his striking, impossible to know. As a Kentuckian, I must say Jim Beam is trash bourbon, even if you are just drinking it for the after effect. Yes, I don't deny it. It is bad. Old Forester and Buffalo Trace are great alternatives. Yes, I agree. I love Buffalo Trace. It's just a little bit rare here for some reason. When was the last time you killed a run? I don't know. I'm not sure what that means. 
So we asked about Ponzinibbio and if he should fight the winner of Edwards or Mag- Lawler Magny when he messaged Magny. Who does Rumble fight? Rumble will be here in six months. Let's see. I would say this. If he looks good against a top six or seven guy, you could probably just give him a title shot right away. If he doesn't, well, then you got problems. As far as Ponzinibbio, I like Ponzinibbio Edwards. I think it's a bad fight for Ponzinibbio. I like the idea of Lawler Magny much better. Got a job offer at the National Institute for Health in Bethesda. Recommendations. Take it. That's a great place to work, and Bethesda's a nice area. Super nice area. Do you believe the Twin Towers fell due to controlled demolition? No, I do not. Uh, What was your impression of Panama? Lived there for six months doing research and thought it had all the beauty of Costa Rica, but way less tourists. I did not love Panama that much. Um... It was way more modern than I thought it would be. There, I mean, to mis- don't misunderstand me. There are parts of Latin America that are very modern, and I didn't think it'd be any different in that sense. I'm saying even relative to that standard, I thought it was way more modern. It, the, there, there's tons of nice areas, very nice hotels, places to walk around. I just didn't get the same sense of culture from Panama, which, by the way, used to be part of greater Colombia anyway. Um, it seemed like it was... It had the tourism appeal of, of Puerto Rico without the same, and there was national pride, but with the same kind of like real national identity. It felt like Florida to me, where people go to Florida to live there, and they don't kind of like wave the Florida flag, even though they're kind of like living there. You know, it, it didn't quite have that same bond with its people that other uh, nations did. Um, there was something kind of missing, but you know, not so bad. Okay. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. I do not know if I'll be doing a post-fight show tomorrow. But, I, oh, uh, what lens are you using for your main camera? This is the Sigma 24-70 to f2.8. Really recommend it. And then for this one, really recommend this lens. Let me see if I can see myself. For photography, this is the Sigma uh, 16mm. This is a prime lens, one4 for and I've got the lens hood on, obviously, but for uh, this is my A sixty four hundred for photography. This thing is killer, super super crisp photos. Uh, okay, thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. Thumbs up, the whole bit. Thanks to everyone who ever listened to my radio show or watched the videos or checked it out. You guys are the best. And uh, until next time, stay for all.